This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Olivia Cohen-Prue and Keegan Prue, the joyous parents of Eliza Ann Cohen-Prue, born on July 12th. Olivia gave birth to Eliza after a day-long labor and a years-long odyssey to get and stay pregnant. With one in eight couples unable to conceive, Olivia and Keegan came to realize that many others had similar experiences, although few talked about it. They courageously shared their journey with three rounds of in vitro fertilization and two miscarriages in an Enterprise story last fall. Now, Olivia and Keegan, with occasional burbles from Eliza, tell their story of love, loss, heartbreak, persistence, and happiness. Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and I am so thrilled today to be talking to brand new parents, Keegan Prue and Olivia Cohen Prue. And do I hear Eliza too? Oh yeah. Oh. A few little squawks from her. Oh my gosh, <laughs> she's making her podcast debut. Well, Uh, (laughs) Our readers are familiar with this story that led to Eliza's birth because Keegan Prue courageously wrote us a letter last October um, to let people know about an upcoming program, uh, or actually law, that would change who is covered for in vitro fertilization. And they then shared their journey with our reporter, Elizabeth Floyd Mayer. Um, But what I'd Mm -hmm. like to do is start with hearing about the 12th of July. Can you tell us just what that day was like, the day Eliza Ann was born? Well, it was pretty amazing, as you can imagine. (laughs) Uh, I was in labor for what? 23 hours. I was induced a week early. um, And then she came into this world with her fist up next to her shoulder at 4.19 a.m. And it was it was amazing. It was magical. Oh, wow. To feel the magic after a whole day of labor. (laughs) That's really (laughs) I was very ready to eat at that point, too. So that was a good motivator. Well, um, yeah, Olivia was eating a lot of ice chips between uh, about 4 p.m. on the 11th and 4 a.m. on the on the 12th. So it was uh, pretty hard. I ordered food but tried to sneak away to the corner so she wouldn't get jealous of me eating. (laughs) Well, so you were, I was afraid with the pandemic, you might not have been allowed to be there, but it was, you, you that was past that point where they would let. It was, yeah. Um, yeah, very, very thankfully, um, you know, that was, of course, just one other wrinkle in this whole crazy journey was, um, you know, the middle of March when, when COVID really exploded. Um, and those first couple of weeks were really nerve wracking. I mean, there was very little. Uh, information about how COVID could affect pregnancy. There was conflicting information. And of course, um, some of the hospitals in New York City very briefly had periods where um, partners or uh, birthing partners were not allowed in the hospital with 
um, the expectant mother. And so that was obviously very scary. But um, Governor Cuomo did pretty quickly um, issue an executive order to to, to ban that and, and basically say somebody has to be present with the expectant mother. Um, which now having been through that process makes a lot of sense because you definitely want somebody there to support you um, in any way that they can. So yeah, thankfully that was not an issue and I was able to be there um, and really share that whole experience. Yes, that really makes a difference. I think in the in the bad old days when you know the woman was knocked <laughs> out and the husband was out in the waiting room, it just didn't have the same oh, kind yeah. of bonding. Well, so... If we can go back now to hear the journey that led to all this, but I'd like to start way back. How did the two of you meet and fall in love? How Just how did that happen? Well, we met online. We met through a dating app called uh, OkCupid. We were both living in New York City at the time, and um, Keegan just found me and sent me a really thoughtful email and then we correspond back and forth for a little bit. And then I kind of forgot about him, to be honest, <laughs> as weird as that is to say, uh, just between work and life and everything. And then I saw him on a different dating website and was like, oh, it's that guy again with that unusual name. And he was really thoughtful. And I had gone on some pretty bad dates in between the time that he first emailed me and the time that I saw him again. And so I reached out and then we went on our first date a couple days later. And then that was pretty much it. Wow. So you just really clicked right away. Isn't that something? And it was the unusual name that made him stand out. So you remembered. (laughs) And Um, his writing skills were just, he was very thoughtful and, um, really had read my dating profile and, uh, you know, dating in New York City is really, really hard. And to have someone that actually takes the time to try and get to know you is something very special. So, yeah. So... And I just count my lucky stars every day that she actually decided to write back eventually because I figured she was gone after that two weeks. Oh, wow. Wow. So was the idea of having children part of your relationship from the start or is that something that evolved as you, you know, deepened your love and and thought about the future? No, it it was definitely front and center, I think, from pretty early on. Uh, Keegan was working for a school at the time as a vice principal, so I knew he liked kids, and I was 29 when we met, so I, you know, I've always known that I wanted to be a mom ever since I was a little kid, Um, so we were actually on the subway one day, I think it was our third or fourth date, and we were, there was a little girl on the subway who was talking to us and, you know, making faces and whatever. And uh, I asked Keegan if working with kids made him want to have them more or uh, less. <laughs> and he said, no, I want to, it makes me want to have them more, definitely working with them. So, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely something we talked about from the beginning, from very early on. So you were, in these modern times, relatively young when you got married. Um, I mean, so many 
women are getting married so much later, but you were, what, 31? Yeah. So yeah. it it must have come as somewhat of a surprise when the infertility raised its ugly head in the midst of your yeah. marriage. Can you tell us about that yeah. if it's not too painful? Yeah. I So I... My grandmother had had um, repeated miscarriages, so I knew about that. So I knew there was a chance that maybe I would have issues. I never had any pregnancy scares in my life. Um, But, you know, I was very cautious at all of these things. So I never put deep thought into it till we got married and we started trying and then it's not working. And I said from the beginning, when we started trying, give it nine months and then seek out help, seek out an OBGYN. Um, and so that's pretty much what we followed. And it was, it's hard. I mean, it was shocking once I got the actual diagnosis of my, um, low ovarian reserve, which means I don't have as many eggs as I should for my age. And so that is, that was really, really hard and shocking. I think no matter how much you try and prepare for it, you're never prepared for something like that. So. No, I think a lot of people aren't really that familiar with the biology that women just have a set number of eggs in their life. And, you know, there's your supply. But, um, if you could just tell us then, because it wasn't until I read Keegan's letter that I realized how common this is, and it was so brave of you to get a conversation going about it in our community, that one in eight people face this, one in eight couples um, yeah. face this problem. So Yeah, and that's, that's part of what is really, um, what really helped us, because I think... Um, you know, in, in talking with a lot of people who've gone through this, there's a lot of fear and hesitance to uh, to sort of share your story and talk to people about it because uh, it is something that can be embarrassing or shameful um, and can just be very difficult to go through. And But of course, you know, anything that's difficult is made easier by sharing it and by hearing from other folks who've been through the same thing. And that's what we found as soon as we started to tell family and friends that we were going through, um, people just came out of the woodwork. I mean, it was, you know, um, shocking to know that there were so many people that we had had known for so long and had gone through this and we didn't know about it. It was kind of like, wow, how, how are we all in our own individual places kind of suffering through this really hard experience? Um, but at the same time, it was also uh, really brought forward this great community and, and makes it feel um, a lot easier to go through when you know others who've been through it or who are going through it. Um, and, and that was one of the biggest, um, I guess, aha moments of the whole thing was just, you know, it is so incredibly common. We heard from family members who'd had pregnancy losses and friends who had gone through uh, IVF, um, you know, neighbors, certainly after our article came out, uh, many people in the community came up to us and, and we had some great conversations and uh, people offering great support to us who had been through similar things. Um, and that made the whole experience much easier. But also, I think from the start really made us realize that um, it's just not something that people talk about enough uh, because it is such a common experience. 
Yes, mm-hmm. and I heard from many people too um, in our newsroom. You know, just being grateful you had told that story. And I don't know if it was hard then to have such a public pregnancy. I know I was out on the front porch of the Enterprise one day, either taking in or putting out the flag. And I saw you walk by and I saw Olivia was pregnant. And I was just so happy. But then I thought, later, wow, maybe that was kind of weird for them because, you know. No, no. Um, I mean, that was kind of the reaction of the whole village, I, I would say. People were so excited when they found out. Yeah. Either we told them or they just saw me. It was, yeah, I mean, we've had so many people in the village and also just, we've also had random people email us, um, from all over about the article, which has been really amazing. Well, so if it's not too painful, I'd love to have you walk through the journey you went through because it was a tough one. Um, Just if you could describe from the beginning, you know, what what the process of IVF is like and also Mm -hmm. um, how you had to endure two miscarriages. Mm-hmm. So we, um, so first I went to the OBGYN and after about nine months of trying, they did tests um, and they put me on a fertility drug that is also used for breast cancer treatment. Um, so I did three months of that and then that was unsuccessful. So we decided to move on to the fertility clinic. So we went to Boston IVF in Albany. And there uh, we met with our amazing fertility doctor, Dr. Algaro, and she redid tests on me um, and found out that my ovarian reserve had gone from normal low range to just low. And so she suggested we move forward with IVF. So it was actually a pretty quick process. We met with her in August. I started IVF my first round, I think, late September of 2018. Yes, 2018. I'm having to do the math as a new parent. (laughs) But could you just describe Um, what that process is like? Because um, I think most people aren't familiar with it. So IVF is... They start you on um, two drugs. Um, both are injected into your stomach. Uh, it sounds really scary, and it is at the beginning, and then you kind of get used to it. Um, so there's two drugs they give you to essentially grow your um, follicles, which are the sacs that the eggs grow in. And you're given each month a woman produces multiple follicles, but your body chooses the one golden one to release and hopefully fertilize. But in the case of IVF, they want to pump up all of those follicles um, and grow all those eggs, try to, at the same rate. So the drugs help you do that. And then there's a third drug that is introduced, I want to say, it depends on how you're reacting to the drugs, but I think it was after about five days, they introduce a third shot. Uh, which basically helps it so that you don't ovulate, so your body doesn't release all of them, because IVF is all about perfect timing. Um, So that is essentially what it is. It's about a two-week process of shots, 
and they monitor you every other day. You go into the clinic, you do blood work, and you do an ultrasound. They measure all these follicle sacs. And there is no guarantee that there's an egg in each of these sacs, too. So it's, it's really kind of a gamble. Um, some women produce a ton. Some women may produce one or two. Um, and I, with my first cycle, I really responded well. Um, but I had some stuff that was growing way too big, some follicles and some that were not catching up enough in time because I was responding too well and they really want to grow them all at the same rate. Um, so I did about two weeks of shots and then they give you a call and tell you it's time to do the trigger shot, which is your very last shot. And that is the shot that tells your body it's time to ovulate. And that has to be perfectly timed, I think, within 48 hours of what they do. is called the egg retrieval surgery. Um, so they give you the call. They give you some weird time. I, I don't remember what time it was. Maybe it was like 7.30 at night on a Thursday. <laughs> and you have to do the shot at that time. You don't want to mess it up because it's perfectly timed. And then they give you your surgery time for the egg retrieval. So then we went back uh, a couple days later for the egg retrieval and um, they put you out for that. So you're not awake at all. And what the doctor does is they basically take a needle into your ovaries and extract the eggs from the follicle sacs. Um, so when you wake up from the surgery, which is pretty quick, uh, they tell you how many eggs they got and that can kind of gauge everything. Um so that's kind of the IVF front end of it. Then they combine the eggs with the sperm in the lab and they give you an update, I think three days after the retrieval to tell you how everything is growing. Um, and it is a numbers game. Things do fall off. Not everything fertilizes. It's not a guarantee. Uh, you could have 20 eggs and maybe none of them fertilize the sperm. Uh, I think our first cycle, I got eight and all eight did fertilize. And then by day five, that tells them what are the strongest embryos, what has grown. And there's ones that will die off in that time period. Um, so I don't remember. Keegan, do you remember how many we had? Um, I think there ended up with maybe five and then a six that was partially developed uh, that they just kind of uh, ended up freezing. Yeah. So uh, with our first cycle, we opted for a fresh transfer, which means they took one of those day fives and we went in the fifth day after the retrieval and they put it back inside of me. Um, which is a very painless process. It sounds weird. Uh, they put a catheter up into your uterus and then puff the little embryo in and uh, in some fluid, and then that's it. And then you wait about two weeks for pregnancy results. You go back to the fertility clinic and they draw your blood. So that's what we did for that cycle. Um, and then it ended up, let's see, I ended up getting pregnant and then they test you every two days after that to make sure that your pregnancy levels are going up. So in a normal pregnancy, they double 
every two days. Is that correct, Keegan? Yeah, they should roughly double every two days. The HCG is what it's called. Yep. So my issue with the first pregnancy is it was not fully doubling. It was going up, but it wasn't fully doubling. So that tells them there may be something wrong. Um, and they told me, my nurse told me, it could be an ectopic pregnancy, which is a, a non-viable pregnancy that's growing in your tubes, or it's it can be quite dangerous. Or it could just be a non-viable pregnancy, which means you will miscarry. Or it could be totally normal and the levels will go up and everything's fine. We just don't know is what I was told. And we'll just keep on testing every couple of days. So we went through that process. So during all this, how, we, how did you handle this, both of you, emotionally and psychologically? I'm You were carrying on with your regular lives, going to work. Doing, yep. but like um, it's just so different than a pregnancy that happens <laughs> biologically, where it's got all yeah, kind of a mystery until yeah. So it must be just a constant presence in your marriage and in your life. If you could just talk a little about how you endured that or how you got through that process. Yeah, it was, and it's a and it's a constant whiplash. I think. You know, even from the beginning of the IVF process, as Olivia was describing, um, a lot of people in the sort of IVF community call that agritrophal process the uh, embryo hunger games because um, there's that constant attrition of, you know, how many eggs are we going to get, how many of those eggs are going to fertilize, how many eggs are fertilized are actually going to make it. Um, so, and then, of course, you know, getting into the actual pregnancy test and tracking, you know, the, the growth, certainly for our first pregnancy. Um, it's just a constant up and down. I mean, with that first pregnancy, we, I remember we got the um, pregnancy test results on Halloween. Um, and it was our first Halloween in Altamont, which every Altamonter knows is a very big thing. Um, <laughs> so I remember sitting on our porch that night being like, this is awesome. We're in Altamont. It was our first Halloween uh, in our house. And we're like, oh, amazing. We're pregnant. Um, you know, everybody's coming in trick-or-treating. Everything's lovely. Um, and then, you know, two days later, go in for the second uh, draw of the uh, to check the HDG and then have that total whiplash of the phone call saying this could be a non-viable pregnancy um, was was hard. Um, yeah. And I think the, the key for us through all of this was just being really open and just talking with each other, communicating with each other about, you know, what are the what are the different ways things could turn out? How are we feeling about it? Having a, having a real sense for, you know, how to kind of help each other out and, and also just kind of being there for each other and going going through it because, you know, every, um, you know, it's, it's something that others can relate to who've been through the process, but, you know, each pregnancy, each, you know, experience is totally unique um, and only we kind of know directly <laughs> what it was like to go through it. So, um, yeah, I think it was just, just really being there for each other and communicating and listening and trying to support each other as best as possible. I mean, there were certainly times when I was really down and Olivia would, you know, be able to put a more positive spin on things or just kind of refocus around the future and vice versa. Um, but yeah, that, that first, the first pregnancy was very hard because it was really a drawn out process. Um, you know, like Olivia said, it was sort of uncertain. I mean, we were in that limbo for 
uh, two or three weeks, really, of not knowing, you know, was it just going to be a viable pregnancy or not? Because we, uh, what we eventually kind of landed on was the HCG kept going up. And so the fertility clinic said, you know, the only way we're really going to know is we need to do an ultrasound, but you have to wait until, um, uh, I think, like six, six weeks uh, or a couple of weeks after the um, implantation to actually be able to see anything on ultrasound. So it was really just that waiting game. But, you know, are we going to see anything? Are we not? And I think the first ultrasound, there was some signs of growth. Like they could see a little gestational sac starting and, you know, couldn't see, obviously at that point it's too small to see a heartbeat or anything like that. But that was sort of a glimmer of hope. Like maybe something is there. Um, and the HCG was continuing to go up. Um, but then I think by the next one, there wasn't much more further growth. Um, and so that, you know, was obviously a big, big letdown, but then the HCG was still going up. So it was still kind of like a, we're going to wait and see, like, we just need to only time will tell. Um, and so, yeah, that, that waiting was incredibly hard. Um, and then I think it was maybe the, the sort of third check-in or ultrasound where it was really, there was no further growth. And they told us that uh, it was sort of an officially diagnosed as a blighted ovum, which is when you have a gestational sac that starts growing, but nothing grows. A fetus doesn't start developing or the embryo doesn't continue to develop. Um, and yeah, so that, that was sort of the official official word of this is not a viable pregnancy. Oh, how heartbreaking. And I think also with um, what I learned out of this process, I guess both of us learned because we had never been through a pregnancy or anything. I always associated a miscarriage with bleeding. And so I thought, well, I'm not bleeding, so everything's fine. Like, that's the sign of a miscarriage. I had no idea that your body doesn't know right away, which was the situation we were in, is my body did not register that this was a non-viable pregnancy. So I wasn't bleeding. I was completely fine, not feeling anything. Um, and that was a big thing that I just didn't understand until we were in that situation that you could have a miscarriage and it's very delayed. Yeah, I think most of us wouldn't understand that. And what's so remarkable is with the modern science that made this in the end possible, you had like an inside view of what was happening in your body that in generations past, uh, pregnant women didn't have. But it sounds like you also had a way of sharing a pregnancy that most women don't have. Um, You Mm -hmm. know, men are sort of... Of course, they donate the sperm, but they are yep. like outside the process. And it sounds like the two of you really, every step of the way, because of the difficulty of it, I mean, Keegan talks about it as we, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Our pregnancy. Oh, yeah. no, our pregnancy, which that's, that's a really, I think, wonderful thing um hearing the two of you share every step of this torturous process as, yeah. <laughs> as a couple but um yeah so having been through one miscarriage then how did you get up the courage to try this again i well i think the first Pregnancy gave us an idea of, okay, I can get pregnant, which is a big deal when you're doing fertility treatment because you don't know till you actually get pregnant. There's women that try, I mean, they do cycle after cycle of 
various things. Maybe they do 10 cycles of IVF, and they never get pregnant. That is definitely a possibility. But our doctor is like, well, you were able to get pregnant. Uh, That's a good sign. So I think that gave us a glimmer of hope that this was just a fluke. So then we decided to basically get back on the horse pretty quickly thereafter. I ended up having to get uh, DNC surgery to remove the blighted ovum um, in December. And then we started, we did the neck transfer, and that was a frozen transfer in February. So it was pretty soon after. I think we started prepping my body for the next transfer in January. So we were very optimistic at that point. Um, So they defrosted one of the embryos that we had frozen from the first cycle. So we had transferred the one that ended up being our first um, miscarriage and then freezing the other ones that were viable. Um, so we transferred that second one in February and I ended up getting pregnant again. So that was really exciting for us. And then that too ended up with a miscarriage. That one was, that one, we had a lot of anxiety going into the ultrasounds. Uh, so when you do IVF, they monitor you, our clinic monitors you up through 10 weeks because uh, that's usually when you can tell that a pregnancy is viable. Um, <clears throat> you can see that heartbeat by that point. Um, and they have you come in a couple times for ultrasounds in, I think, at six weeks and at eight weeks and maybe at 10 weeks. Um, so that embryo took and we saw a heartbeat. We were so excited. We saw it wiggling around. We saw the little arm buds and leg buds and the head wiggling around. Uh, so we were officially graduated from the fertility clinic and released to the OBGYN for uh, regular pregnancy care. And <clears throat> at our 12-week appointment, so we had graduated from Boston IVF at 10 weeks. And then we, or 10 and a half weeks, maybe. And then we went to the OB's office for our 12-week ultrasound appointment. And at the ultrasound, we were told that there was no heartbeat and there was no blood flow, which essentially means that uh, the baby had died. Um, So that that was horrible. That was probably the worst day of my life. And... Uh, then they were actually able to get me in for a DNC that night. Um, so that whole day was just a complete whirlwind. We were supposed to go out of town, and obviously everything changed. We were going to tell family oh and friends gosh. after that appointment, and it was just everything came crashing down. Oh, god! I would add, to one of the, um, I guess, one of the surprises and, and- other difficult things about the, the Olivia had mentioned she had two DNC surgeries to you know remove the remove what came from those conceptions. Um, and one of the surprises and really hard things was we found out that those surgeries were actually done on the labor and delivery ward. Um, so we went when we went in for those, we actually had to check in where you check in to to like deliver a baby and walk by the waiting room that uh, you know grandparents and so forth were waiting oh, for <laughs> babies gosh. to come out. Um, and fortunately, it is sort of talking to the, you know, the check-in 
uh, agents at St. Peter's when we went in for those surgeries, they said, you know, you used to have to like really like wait in the uh, waiting area with other, you know, expectant partners and drinkers um, and things like that. Now they kind of whisk you in um, directly to the to the room. Um, but still, you know, those those really uh, and we talked about this with you know the doctors and nurses there of like, man, this is really like adding insult to injury to not only have mm-hmm. just come out that we're going to lose this pregnancy, but also to have to come to the labor and delivery ward uh, and see, you know, these smiling future grandparents out in the waiting room is really uh, um, a little cruel. Yeah. So um, that was just one of the, the uh, you know, hard experiences and also surprising experiences uh, along the way. Um, but, you know, it, it was interesting that, that um, first BNC, as I was kind of waiting for Olivia to come back from the actual operating room, um, I was kind of just, you know, waiting and obviously devastated uh, and just really felt like, you know, we're going to be back here one day having our baby. Um, and actually, as it turned out on July 12th, when Eliza was born, we were literally down the hall um, from those rooms where we were waiting for the DNC. Um, so it was a, a very funny full circle moment um but really uh i guess a, a fond memory uh, of the journey that we had you know come all that way it's almost a year and a half plus later um being just down the hall from that room where we had such a terrible experience having you know the most wonderful experience of our lives Wow. And, uh, you know, I'm so glad that you ended with that because our time has passed so quickly. But it this idea of full circle is just wonderful. <laughs> this idea that you were literally in the same place, but in a totally different plane, um, having produced Eliza Ann. So do either of you have any closing thoughts just for our listeners about your experience or advice? Um... I think if you're in the, in the journey, um, you know, never give up and do what fits for you, whether it be IVF or adoption or embryo adoption, sperm donation, egg donation. There's all these different, avenues and I think explore it and be open to everything. That's my best advice. Yeah. And I think to, to go off of that, really be open with your partner and talk through those different options because you'll learn over time sort of where do your personal boundaries lie. Um, and I think the, the last thing I would just say is one of the most important um, things we heard along the way or repeats of advice we heard maybe on a I can't remember if it was a podcast or somewhere, but, um, you know, somebody who had also been through infertility said at a certain point, you have to really decide for yourself, what is your end goal? Is your end goal to be pregnant or is your end goal to be parents? Um, and I think especially after the second miscarriage, that was a really important question that, you know, I think we had mentioned in the article that we met with an adoption group um, because we spent some time reflecting on that question and realized it really is our goal to be parents. Uh, we didn't know how that would happen. Um, but we also understand and respect for some people, the answer is that they do want to be pregnant and they want to have that experience and and whether, um, you know, and that's an important step on the way to being parents for them. Um, so I think that's a really important question to ask yourself if you are going through this. And then also just as Olivia said, to really research the options because, you know, like the, 
inspiration for the first article. Uh, doors are opening to, to make this the process this more accessible to more people, um, which is great. Um, and there are, there are always options out there. Uh, so knowing what those options are and talking to them with your partner will really help you find, uh, find your path to parenthood, hopefully.